0: Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today, I'm here with James Swanston, CEO of Voyage Control. James, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Hugh. It's really great to be here.
0: So I I want to start with what Voyage Control is. You guys have done a bunch of things over the last decade or so. Talk to me about how the company started and what you're up to now.
1: Sure. So everything sort of started in a, you know, pure accidental way really the original premise of the business was around passenger transport and I realized that I'd got that horribly wrong so we sort of did a pivot because our first client owned a couple of convention centers and needed an event scheduling uh, solution for their logistics so that's ultimately what we got paid to build in 2012 2013 and then we've just gone from there sort of getting into construction and a range of other sectors
0: interesting and so in construction and and these adjacent sectors, how, how do you guys enter the in- industry? What are you doing?
1: In almost every case, serendipity plays a very big role. When I first got into construction, three things happened. Firstly, we got introduced to Suffolk, who's a big GC in the United States. We got approached by Procore to build an integration into their sort of early marketplace back in 2016. And Langer Rourke, who's a big client of ours in the United Kingdom, had just taken on board a head of logistics who had come from Tesco, a big retailer, and was sort of trying to understand how the construction industry approaches supply chain, or rather doesn't approach the supply chain.
0: That was an absolutely leading end to that sentence. So let's talk about how the construction industry doesn't approach supply chain. I mean, obviously, people are getting materials where they need to get, and buildings are still going up. But, you know, a statement like that, I think a lot of people are nodding their heads and say, well, there's room to grow. So let's talk a little bit about the room to grow.
1: Absolutely. And as you know, I'm a former military officer and anyone in the military studies logistics. If you think about (laughs) all of the greatest failures in the last several thousand years, logistics plays a big role. You think about Napoleon going into Russia, you then actually think about Hitler going into Russia. You think about multiple battles where there's a complete disconnect of logistics. So for someone like me coming from a military background, logistics is sort of hard-coded into what you do as a person running a business. And certainly that is the case for many other industries, but that is not necessarily what happens in in construction. And if you think about it, there is no sort of sub-profession within construction that is wholly focused around supply chain and logistics. And I think sometimes that comes down to the reality of who bears the financial risk for projects between the the GC and and the trades.
0: That's interesting. So you're seeing that the way the approach to supply chain is has evolved. You think is is because of how risk is assessed?
1: Uh, absolutely. It's it, it's almost a question of it's not my problem uh, until it becomes my problem, which is, is probably not quite the right way of of thinking about that. In in sort of more, dare I say, vertically integrated manufacturers because ultimately construction is a manufacturing process. If, if you don't get your steel on time as a car manufacturer or you're not thinking about the price of steel, you're going to be in trouble. If you produce sugar and you're not concerned about the raw price of sugar, you're going to get in trouble. So I think in most other sectors there's a huge amount of work that has gone into this over decades, whereas in construction we're sort of still grappling with doing everything on whiteboards and spreadsheets, let alone using any form of digital technology to manage this.
0: Well, I'm going to take those comments somewhere that I I will see if we can answer because some of it's internal to companies. But you make me think of kind of scope of ownership. I mean, one of the things from the outside, I know that certainly the US military spends a lot of time thinking about is what is someone responsible for? And are they ready for that? And can they think that long? Can they handle that level of complexity? And I wonder if there's a little bit of a mismatch there, right? Is it sounds like, you know if you're the foreman or the superintendent, you feel like you own your job site, but you may not you don't own you know all of the all of the processes that get materials to you. So do you think maybe that's one of the areas where people might look is that the scope of control is is optimized to keep risk away and not to keep the system flowing.
1: So I think there are two parts actually to that. The first is when I was a young platoon commander as actually eighteen year old logistics was an important thing and i had my platoon sergeant who was responsible for for logistics and then as i became the company second in command and the company commander logistics was always part of the planning process and so as an officer it's a core part of training but also for soldiers it's exactly the same so within a platoon in a rifle section the second in command is in charge of logistics in a platoon you know, the, the platoon sergeant is in charge of logistics. So at every stage of going through your career, logistics plays an intimate role. And I just don't think you see that at all in the construction industry. And, and so you sort of build this body of people in the military who, for whom logistics is very important because it's also a life and death situation mm-hmm. for the military. Right. So it's very important.
0: I wonder in, in manufacturing though, logistics is obviously critical, but I don't believe it's part of, what you learn on your way up if you are running a, well, you must be if you're running a factory. But, but I, I wonder if maybe the stability of supply chains in, in manufacturing makes it a little bit less of, of a critical point because you, you establish it and you, you check your numbers and away you go. Whereas in construction, because every site is its own thing, it's a little bit closer to how the military might view things.
1: Maybe. I mean, I think the, the the thing with a big manufacturer is there's a clear established set of standard operating procedures that have to operate throughout the whole business because ultimately they're trying to manufacture things so they need to have standardized approaches. I think one of the other problems in construction is you end up with – projects doing their own thing and so even though the branding might be the same across a very big construction company at a site level people just do their own thing and and there's no enforcement of sort of standards whereas with the military or dare i say manufacturing you have to have the standards in place yeah perhaps to use a military analogy if it'd be like sort of on one site you're using. 7.62 7.62 ammunition, and on another site using 5.56 5. ammunition. It, it actually just doesn't work. So, so I, I sort of think that lack of standardization in construction permeates a lot of the challenges, not just around logistics and supply chain.
0: It certainly does in the data side. I mean, you hear that over and over again: is that different project managers will enter data differently, or have their people enter data differently, which you know results in a real difficulty with dashboards and and kind of executive control, which. You're hearing more and more companies try to address, but it's not that easy. It's not that easy to to go from project to project and and enforce these things without it becoming, you know, a real strategic initiative. Yeah. Uh, and again, you do see that. I mean, one of the things I think that construction is also maybe learning as as an industry is the idea of company wide strategic initiatives. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and how how hard they are. <laughs>
1: yeah, and that's also where it comes down to. I was actually thinking about this a lot over the last couple of weeks because, you know, in the military, when we've spoken previously, you you have this idea of commander's intent. So you understand what the senior leadership wanting to do. And so what you're trying to do tactically has to fit in with that strategic plan. And a great example of that probably these days is around sort of sustainability, where a lot of very big construction companies are very keen to focus on net zero emissions at some point in in the not-too-distant future. But that doesn't necessarily permeate down to uh, a construction site. But then the second thing which became a a bit of a military concept, I don't know, 30 years ago, was this idea of a strategic corporal. And the idea there was someone at a tactical level can have strategic effects by virtue of what they do or don't do. And the negative example of this is where civilians get killed where I think that plays into the construction world is, is probably a little bit more negative in that you have people at a very tactical level who are preventing strategic decisions from being made. And the example you just gave about people doing their own sort of data collection is a perfect example of that where a construction company wants to capture all the data in the same way to understand how they're operating. But you have someone on the job site whose view is they've been doing something the same way for 30 years and that's the best way of doing it and they're not willing to look at industry best practice. So you almost have that challenge there as well where someone at a very tactical level is actually preventing the strategy from being implemented appropriately across an organization.
0: And I think this is coming back to manufacturing as our kind of counterpoint isn't really unique to construction. It's a little bit unique to construction now. But across the last 30 or 40 years, you've seen this in company after company where they've had to really rework what people think is important, what they think is valuable, and what they think is absolutely necessary for them to do. I mean, you know, the extreme example of that was when Jack Welch went in the very beginning in the 80s, fired something like 30,000 people. Actually, I think the number is bigger than that. I just don't want to overquote. And the reason for that was they found that in their operations, people just wouldn't take the retraining. And he said, I, I, need, I need different teams. I need different people. That's an extreme expensive way to handle something. And I think he exited some businesses too. So it wasn't just a net, a net loss of staff. But this idea that, you know, how, how do you make a big dispersed organization of people, all of whom have their own experience and views and goals and values? change. I don't know that, that anybody's ever going to talk about firing people so much as you know how do we retrain them. So, so you, you know, a great example of that is in the soft drinks business where I've spent some time with Pepsi and some other folks. I worked with somebody in the US where the people against whom they were competing changed and they had to go from basically going against one of the big major companies to locals. And it was in the water business, actually. So in other words, instead of fighting Coke, they were fighting local bottlers. And as a result, everything that was important and everything that had to get done needed to change. And it took them like 18 months yeah. of constant talk and constant explanation of why this is important. And here's how this trickles down to what you're doing, Mr. Salesperson, when you're talking to a, you know, a mom and pop store.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's it's also interesting, you know, when you talk about someone battling against others, the, the reality in business is businesses don't have to survive. <laughs> and there's nothing that says that a business has to stay in business. And, and the reality is that business is not an exam. It's a competition. Yeah, it's not a pass or fail. It's it's you know, you survive or you don't. And I, I love sort of quoting, you know, W. Edwards Deming with, with, you know, some of his things about survival isn't mandatory, but it's, it's true with business. And, you know, I think ultimately businesses that don't make those hard decisions will at some point die or get taken out by competition. And that is a reality. And we haven't quite seen that in the U.S. construction industry, whereas in the U.K. You totally have. Yeah, yeah.
0: What's it? What, I mean, there were a couple of recent big failures, right? Yeah, who were it was they?
1: Carillion? But there are others who have, you know, had massive profit warnings and have had to be bailed out. I mean, obviously, Katerra in the US had to get bailed out as well. But that is the reality. And, and the industry, particularly, you know, with GCs operates in such a way that the GCs are the probably the least profitable part of the whole industry.
0: <laughs> There's the old, the old joke that Two, two guys are, are, are running and there's a bear behind them. And, and one guy goes, man, I hope I beat the bear. And the other guy says, no, I just hope I beat you. Yeah, exactly. So, so at the end of the day, you're right. It isn't an exam. It's a competition. Yeah. And you know, in this case, the bear is bad things happening to low margin businesses that don't have the ability to absorb it. correct So coming back to voyage control and how you're working with logistics, talk to me a little bit about how you're working with companies and what you've learned along the way.
1: I think the biggest lesson is that it's a massive behavior change activity. And, and yes, we're doing it through the medium of a technology platform, but it's all about behavior change. Uh, it's about highlighting, you know, for, for people who are keen to understand this, that there are technology tools that can help them do their jobs better. And that's probably the carrot. And then I guess there is a stick component to this, which is sort of to say, well, you know, a point will come where the way you're operating isn't going to be competitive anymore and you're going to get in trouble at some point. And that both works at a GC level and at a subcontractor level and arguably at an owner level as well. Over the last few years and I'm sure for the next few years there's a lot of things we want to do but we just feel that we we, we shouldn't do them because the industry isn't ready for them, like fully connecting a logistics and supply chain platform to BIM and project schedule is absolutely something we want to do, but uh, none of our customers are remotely ready to do that in any meaningful way yet. So we, we sort of need to be slightly ahead of where the market is but not jump ahead too far that it sort of looks like vaporware and we have to ground our solutions in reality of what the industry really wants us to do.
0: And what it's trained for. I mean, one of the things that that makes... You know, BIM now a little bit more prevalent than it was is just the sheer number of people that can work with it.
1: Yes, absolutely, but that's taken decades. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really, it really has, and it's and it's taken some decisions from everything from labor unions all the way to to you know universities and so on.
1: Regulation in, in Europe has has helped uh, with that as well.
0: Yeah, certainly the UK, right? I was a decade ago, I think, right, yep.
1: that, <clears throat> that BIM was... Definitely, yes. So, and and what th- that only hasn't, dare I say, helped practitioners in the industry. It's also helped people providing products to yep. have more certainty about providing those yep. products because that's always a challenge for someone trying to build new products. You need to know that there's going to be a market for it. So having that sort of regulatory framework in place in the UK enabled a lot of UK companies to sort of build solutions around that.
0: And, and argue for, I mean, to your point about building something, someone has to argue for some money, whether it's to a VC or whether it's to a grant making body or somebody, but being able to point to the fact that the entire industry, or at least a major segment of the industry, because I think it was only for government buildings and government related buildings, yeah, correct? correct? Yeah. And if, Which is still not, that's a lot. Yeah. That's, a, that's a big deal.
1: Yeah. And there, there's some great grant making things that happen in Europe with Innovate UK and so on. I think the challenge for tech companies sometimes is they can get drawn way too much down the rabbit hole of almost having their reason for being around where they get their next grant from as opposed to commercializing a solution. So, so, so that, that's always an inevitable challenge, I think, for, for tech companies.
0: What, a f- what an interesting perspective because in the US, you don't hear that. You know, In the US, you hear a, a mirror of that where it's all about getting the next VC check. And instead of commercializing, not commercializing, they're over-commercializing sometimes. You know, that that gap between seed and series A is often all about hyping up your marketing and and trying to really drive revenue to the detriment potentially of product development and other things.
1: Yeah, and it's an interesting you know thing where you sometimes have to wonder and i talk to you know founders who've raised lots of money and you sort of wonder whether their primary customer is the next investor as opposed to a construction company and 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 i i don't think that's necessarily the right answer either so and it's great that people are raising lots of money and like hiring lots of people but ultimately you do need to think about building a sustainable business model that you know where you want to have profit and a decent ebitda so but that's often not sort of you know, spoken about by tech founders.
0: Well, and I think just to, as as we explore that little rabbit hole for a minute, I think some of the issue is models that make sense for some sectors might not for others. So if you're thinking that the returns and the, the pace of returns and core operating metrics are going to be even remotely the same for construction as they might be for something consumer or something a little bit more kind of, you know, mainstream B2B. I think it's a it's a problem. And I some I know some really good VCs who who get that, who,
1: yeah. who
0: understand that the, the it isn't so much that it's faster or slower, it's that the process is different. Yes. And you get you can get to a place where you're moving as fast as you want to move. But but it it, it isn't quick and, it, and you don't get to that point as early as you might with some other whether B2B or, or B2C.
1: Absolutely. And I think a lot of really, truly successful companies that operate in this industry have, you know, been going at it for 10 years before they've started to become really successful financially because it is very hard. I think that time is getting a bit quicker. It's certainly, you know, I mean, you know, Procore is often held up as, a, you know, given how long it took them. And, and But that's the reality of this industry. And it's it's not an industry that's going to move magically overnight to embrace technology in the way that other sectors or indeed consumer businesses can do.
0: I had a fantastic chat with someone from Suffolk yep. yesterday and just talking about that, that you know, he's in the middle of it and kind of talking about exactly what you're, you're describing, which is just because you have had a good pilot doesn't mean that it goes anywhere else. And and just because you have had a good meeting with one site doesn't mean it goes anywhere else. So the, the, the complexity and need for redundancy in construction sales is almost unlimited. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it isn't really. It's just way more than you expect it to be. There is no, even though there's an innovation team and they're critical to the process, they're not. They're not. They're they're necessary but not sufficient. I think was what he was saying. Uh, he was in that team.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I mean, Suffolk was interesting. We sort of ended up being across a dozen sites before. We sort of really connected at an enterprise level with them, which is which is good for us. But at the same time, that also creates a challenge for construction companies, where you have the shadow IT of you know, all of these sort of little tech solutions in you know one or two different projects, where they could actually be business critical, but the business hasn't actually vetted them. You know, from a is this product actually going to Survive, <laughs> or is it, you know causing sec- security problems and, and everything like that. So it is a bit of a conundrum for these guys. But you're absolutely right. It's, I think, the name of the game is actually, you know, getting to those bigger enterprise deals because having one-off pilots is never going to assure any company of true success.
0: And then, you know, speaking a little bit more generically, how have you found that process go? I don't want to hone in on, on Suffolk too much, but across some other companies that you've seen. How, how, is, how have you made that work? How have you made it go from a couple of good meetings or a good pilot to something a bit more large scale?
1: Every company is a bit different. We're, we're actually about to sign a, a very big enterprise deal with another very big construction company in the US. And what's unique in this situation is they're going to mandate our software on every project. Because I think a lot of other companies, even when you get to an enterprise discussion, it's still very much up to a site level to think about what they want to do or not do, which going back to our earlier point is a little bit you know, counterintuitive, whereas with this one, there'll be at least 50 sites that sort of all, all brand-new sites that start from the next couple of weeks will, will be on our platform. And so that's that's a great step forward for us, and ultimately that's where we want to get to. With every other construction company, what, what we've sort of found as an interim sort of step is almost putting in place the – the enterprise pricing framework so that whilst the discussions are going on, which can take a year or two to sort of ultimately end up with some kind of master services agreement, the business is still benefiting from the volume pricing discount. So that's in place with multiple other construction companies as well at the moment. I mean, ultimately I think they'll all become enterprise customers, but you almost need to go through that interim step because at the same time a lot of construction companies feel reluctant to force their sites to do anything that's standard <laughs> as well. So that that's just another challenge, another roadblock that sits in the way of a tech company trying to get an enterprise deal in place.
0: Do you think some of that is because early experience with some of what they call ERPs kind of left a bad, I mean, I hear that anyway, that it, it left a bad taste in in everyone's mouth a little bit That that, you know, six, seven years ago, primarily accounting. I mean, they call them ERP, but I think they're more like accounting in my mind, software, suites were sort of pushed out into the field, but they weren't really built for the field. So they imposed as much cost as maybe they saved. They just didn't impose it on the office. They imposed it on the field. Do you think that has something to do with it, that there's now a sense that they're a little sheepish about pushing something out until they're pretty sure that it's going to fly and it's going to unambiguously add value? Yeah,
1: I think there's a bit of that, but I also think there's almost a bit of a lack of leadership around some of this as well, where, you know, a point comes where it's ridiculous to not think about standardizing procedures and I'm not talking about us as a business necessarily but you know it's it's crazy when you have different projects with the same company invoicing in different ways or you know having different procurement activities and, and stuff like that and that yes that affects us a little bit, but it also affects all of their suppliers. One of our customers in other countries but not in the UK, they have five different processes in London for logistics management, depending on the site that you're on. So that is absolute insanity for anyone in their own team because they then need to retrain every time they move to a different site and their entire supply chain has to, you know, go through multiple different processes, which just doesn't, and then they can't collect any data in a standardised way. So, so I think there's a point sometimes where senior leadership just needs to say this is the right thing, get on and do it, as opposed to, oh, I don't want to offend, you know, someone who's been with the business for 30 years just because.
0: Because there's an inherent respect for the, the problem solving and experience of the individual, which I think maybe gets in the way a little bit, right? That That you can still have that, but also say, yes, but we're a you know, $4 billion business that has to behave like a $4 billion business.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, and we haven't really delved into the labor shortage challenge that exists in construction. I I can remember a couple of years ago, I was, you know, going around and and talking to a lot of very big infrastructure projects in the US. And the biggest consistent message was concern over, you know, the future workforce for construction. And the reality is that, you know, construction companies have to digitize. Otherwise, they're just not going to have enough staffing to do a lot of the things that they want to do and, and by the way if you have a labor shortage the cost of labor goes up significantly and so the use of technology also becomes a, an important thing from a, a price reduction perspective so but uh, yeah this is this is one of those big macro issues mm-hmm. in the industry that doesn't necessarily filter down to someone at the tactical level such that they really care <laughs>
0: Yeah, and you can imagine there's a short-term versus long-term problem, right? Is you don't want to annoy the guy who you can't afford to have retire today by digitizing, but as a result, you may bring in fewer of tomorrow's leaders and workers because they don't want to work at a non-digitized or at least you know not modern feeling place, which you hear over and over again. You hear that a big reason for digitization and, and adoption of new things is for millennials and, and for younger people. But obviously there's a tension, right, between short-term and long-term.
1: Exactly. And that, that can sort of become a bit of a ferric victory, though, because if, if companies don't recognize that and sort of communicate that in their teams, it could be a bit too late.
0: <laughs> right. So, yeah. so you're providing software and, and you've you know, started the conversation by talking about mind shifts and different ways of thinking about things. How do you support companies that you work with? In that way, how, do, you, do you provide training? Do you do you provide consulting? What's it? How do you help them to change the way they think about it, or does the software kind of lead them there almost naturally?
1: It actually has to be a bit of both. I, I think I think there's a tendency of tech companies to feel that you can sort of do a fire and forget type of thing with with this, and and certainly the last twelve months of not being able to visit sites has, has made that a little bit challenging. But I, I sort of still firmly believe that. You know, we're still in the early years of helping the industry to transform. So it's important to spend time with our customers and talk about industry best practice and what we're seeing both in the United States and globally and where there are opportunities for our clients to improve what they're doing. So so I think that's an important thing. Something that we're planning on doing is also helping to look at how we can professionalize this a little bit through having more accreditation around training mm-hmm. so that people can get sort of continuing professional development credits and stuff like that, because I think that will help to, to sort of raise the profile of logistics and supply chain in the industry. And and I think that's certainly resonating with some of our customers where you have people who are you know members of professional bodies and stuff like that, and, and I think that'll be a really useful uh, tool. And, you know, Procore did that incredibly successfully with sort of a, a lot of you know, the training yeah. programs they've done. So, you know, it's useful to, to sort of borrow from that. And, and Rix does a lot of this as well. I've been very fortunate to have a good relationship with Rix over the last few years too.
0: That's great. It'll be interesting to see where you land on that. Because on the one end, Procore essentially does, at least the kind of stamps that you get on LinkedIn, I've got a couple of them. They basically do a really good walk through their product. You don't really know how to use it at the end because if you if you don't understand construction management, they haven't taught you that. So yeah. I always liked as an ex-marketer, I always liked the fact that it was a fantastic product demo that you could then go brag about. I was like, well, that's a neat trick. <laughs> yeah. Whereas someone like Rick's, you're going to walk away with a, a deeper and probably broader set of skills and understanding. And I think you know, given what you're looking to do, it'd be interesting to see where you land kind of in between those two, right? Because you want people to think differently as opposed to apply their existing experience and not that too, but, but you want them to think differently about their existing knowledge and experience and think more broadly, but at the same time, understand your product.
1: Absolutely. So, and then in a, in a place like the UK, you then superimpose on top of that the issues around regulation that people need to be aware of, and particularly in a place like London. So there's a lot of other sort of little bits and pieces to this as well that I think will hopefully help in this process.
0: The legal framework around supply chain is actually something I'm just appreciating even now. And, And an example of that is things are regulated as products if they're manufactured until they're installed. Which is interesting because most people in construction their intuition is towards kind of construction regulation and, and and concerns. Whereas like in modular construction, it's a product until you put it into the wall or into the into its space. So that means that the regulatory regimes across the supply chain, there might be overlapping regulatory concerns. I'm sure that they're not conflicting too often, but nevertheless, it's it's more that you need to think about that. You know, the average procurement officer probably doesn't think about.
1: Yeah, and and the other thing that people probably don't necessarily consider is the sort of insurance implications of a lot of this as well. I know that some big insurers are now starting to look at risks in construction supply chain and how a tool like ours can help to mitigate some of that risk. But also, the reality is, if people literally don't have a clue where things are in their supply chain, then who? Right responsible for them financially and and from an insurance perspective
0: let's end with how voyage control helps with that
1: so i I think at the most fundamental level it's about providing a a digital platform to collect a lot of this data because ultimately if you're not able to collect the data and I'll, i'll come back to the sustainability thing in a second but if you're not able to collect data in a meaningful way that's pretty much real time you almost can't do anything else with it. The Lord Kelvin quote about the need to be able to measure things before you can manage them is is absolutely correct. And, you know, when some of our customers are thinking about the sort of net zero sort of environmental and sustainability initiatives, and then they sort of think, okay, well, how much lumber or concrete do we consume or purchase every year? And they don't even know that basic question. They can't even then start to right. think about how they can apply that data to making better management decisions in the business. So almost if nothing else, our platform is there as a, a collection. I mean, funnily enough, given that I've worked in the intelligence community, it's it's sort of a bit funny that, you know, our platform is almost just there to collect information for our customers. But ultimately, that's it, because it's it's not just enough to, to collect data on how many trucks showed up or how much lumber's shown up. It's about what are the decisions you need to be able to make with that and it, and it could be from simple things like okay when does it transfer ownership from a subcontractor to a owner or to a construction company and then wh- who has the insurance risk on this particular day or if we know that something is going to be on time does that help to mitigate you know an insurance problem Yeah, you know, or if we have the data what's that doing the context of liquidated damages if, if that sort of comes up as a problem so it's really about not just capturing the data in a platform like ours. And again, this isn't just a discussion about supply chain, but then how do you think about taking that information and and using it for business?
0: That's exciting. So at the end of the day, some of the change you're talking about is having people think about where things are as an active status as opposed to a, a plus or minus delivery point among other things. I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it, but, but some of what you're doing is asking people to think about the supply chain as an ongoing active process Absolutely. instead of...
1: And it's sort know. of saying, okay, well, who are my three suppliers for this particular product in 2020 and who performed and And then saying, okay, well, they should be on the next jobs and the person that didn't perform who probably was the cheapest <laughs> who yeah. on that particular job... You can sort of say, okay, well, they sort of charge us 20% less, but actually it cost us 10% more because they failed. So we're not going to use them anymore. So I think over time, any platform is going to help construction companies make a lot of better decisions about their procurement. And, and I think that's that's something that hopefully we can help our customers with. But that that's not an overnight thing by any stretch of the imagination. In in many respects, it's a multi-year Mm -hmm. strategy because once you've picked your suppliers for a project that might last for years you're not really going to switch so it's it's almost you know starting to think about the value of the data that you've collected over the last few years
0: and i mean it's worth keeping in mind all of these processes all of these changes you know everybody wants you to change quickly but but the reality is there's so much complexity that it's an evolution not a, a break point yeah yeah well, James, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening. I've I've learned a lot, and I've appreciated having you on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much. And I really appreciate it. It was great to chat again.